You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national and international events to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The podcast program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscar. I'm hosting today's program. Just to those of you listeners in Melbourne, that's right, there is lunch tomorrow at La Pochetta's in Carlton. That's right, midday to 2pm. Don't turn up at 2pm because we'll be gone. Well, the dregs will be there, but I'll be gone. <laughs> all right. If you wonder what anarchy is all about, yeah, my name's Joseph Toscano. Just in case you want to send in the complaint, it's T-O-S-C-A-N-O. Get it right. Remember, immortality is about people remembering your name. We all remember Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great. I don't know who else we remember. Adolf, you know, <laughs> it goes on and on. But uh, if you wonder what anarchy is all about, no, it's got nothing to do with Adolf Hitler, Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan. It's the exact opposite. Anarchos means without rulers, not with rulers, without rulers. So what is the anarchist struggle? The anarchist struggle is the struggle to kneecap rulers. That's right. Not physically, but intellectually. Okay? Intellectually. So how do you remove a ruler's ability to dictate the lives of billions of people? Very simple. You attack the very essence and basis of their power, and that it's inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to share power, devolve power, and it's the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. So if you are involved in struggles, irrespective if they're specific struggles, issue-orientated struggles, general struggles, political struggles, inside and outside the tent, if you work up the right channels or don't work up the right channels. If you're involved in the struggle to share power and share wealth, well, I've got bad news for you. You are an anarchist, and the good news is you won't grow horns and a tail, but you will have a halo over your head. Okay, let's move on. Now, as I said before, well, those of you who've listened in across Australia, uh, you wouldn't have heard me before when I was speaking to the uh, Vic- Melbourne Victorian audience. Um, this is going to be a particularly difficult program because I'll be jumping through a lot of different topics. And uh, the whole purpose of the Anarchist World this week is to give a anarchist libertarian analysis and try to make what what seem to be complex issues easy to understand. And that's the dilemma in a 21st century society. We're always told it's a complex problem. It's complex. 
little minds like yours and mine would have no hope of uh, coming to grips with it. Well, life is very simple. It's exceptionally simple. There are people who exercise power and people who don't exercise power, people who accumulate wealth and people who are waiting for the br- crumbs to be brushed off the table as they try to saw a leg off the table so the whole table collapses. And that's you and me. We're the people trying to saw that leg off the table. Now, capitalist chameleon, you like that? The great thing of uh, doing you know, a radio program like the Anarchist World this week is you can actually, you can allow, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If every time I use the word actually, I'm going to donate a, a dollar to the radio fund. So if somebody can keep tabs on me, I'll be in about $10,000 the way things are going. But capitalist chameleon, very simple, capitalist chameleon. Now, capitalism, as we keep saying, is a simple concept. It's the concept of private investment for private profit. And if you don't make a profit, you die, economically anyway, you die. And a lot of people who don't make a profit commit suicide, and they do die. So capitalism is about private investment for private profit. Now, in Australia... We've been fighting a rearguard battle, government after government after government of all political compositions has been fighting rearguard battles to ensure that we do nothing about climate change or the climate emergency because it will lead into profits. Now, over the last two years, and I do read the Financial Review occasionally just to keep up to date with what the enemy is thinking, I've noticed, and you've noticed, a huge rise in green capitalism. Now, private investors understand that a carbon-based economy is dead. They understand that without taxpayers' money being spent, as we see with the federal government trying to prop up the carbon-based economy, that it will disappear because there's no profit to be made. And it's fascinating to see how green capitalism has become the predominant engine driver for capitalism. Now, the dilemma is there's no such thing as green capitalism or greenwash capitalism. It doesn't exist. What has brought us to this position as a species is very simple. It's the fact that across the world, in every jurisdiction, in almost every nation state, in almost every corner of the universe, it's about private investment investment for private profit, not by individuals competing against each other, but by large transnational corporations who dominate economic activity. And what has brought us to this point that we do have a climate emergency is the type of productive processes that have been put in place by industrial and post-industrial societies, which are based on the concept of private investment for private profit. Now, I hate to say this, although Mr Musk is, you know, thinking about colonising the universe, let alone the moon and the galaxy, and he's already selling tickets to people to colonise the universe. The fact is, we have almost 8 billion people on the planet. We have limited resources. That's right, limited resources. We have increasing greenhouse emissions because of the productive process, and we have a system of production and a system of consumption which is based on the idea of constant expansion, 
constant expansion of the economy, whether you're expanded, as we do in Australia, by almost unlimited immigration. Obviously, it's always the right people we have here, we want in this country, not the bad people, just those who can, you know, are trained and got skills. We don't want refugees and asylum seekers, obviously. I mean, look at government policy. So green capitalism is a chameleon, because if you've ever watched a chameleon, and I'm sure most of you haven't, because they're hard to spot in Australia, but if you ever go to a zoo and you see a poor little trapped chameleon, you'll notice that it changes colour. And it changes colour for a number of reasons. It changes colour to communicate with other chameleons, saying, hello, baby, I'm here. And it changes colour in order to camouflage itself against predators. And it changes colour because of changes in temperature. And it's the same with green capitalism. A chameleon is a chameleon is a chameleon, irrespective of how it changes its colour and why it changes its colour. It doesn't change its DNA. Capitalism is a productive process, it's an economic process, which is destructive, totally destructive as far as the planet is concerned. And it may change its colour like a chameleon and use its 360-degree you know, movement of the, its eyes, you know, to keep an eye on what's happening on the place. But the fact is, it is capitalism at the end of the place. And the dilemma that we have today is based on the concept of consumption for consumption's sake, production for production's sake, and a productive and consumptive cycle which is not based on the satisfaction of real human needs, but is based on the satisfaction of manufactured needs which need resources which include the exploitation of people and the exploitation of, of, of the planet in order to function. So keep your eye out for the uh, capitalist chameleon, the green capitalist chameleon. It's out there, it's growing larger, but the reality is it will not be able to stop the climate emergency until we as a species begin to understand that if you want 8 to 10 to 15 billion people living on this planet, we need to change the way we live, the way we think, the way we produce things, and we need, more importantly, we need to change this drive based on consumption and production for production's sake. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. Now, there's a great thing about living in Australia. You know, I was born in this country, so don't tell me to go back home. Although, if my uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander friends tell me to go back home, well, they do have a point. I am the beneficiary of their losses. But I do love this country, and I'll tell you why. Because we have one of the most inane, ignorant, stupid, inconsequential constitutional arrangements that has ever existed in the history of the human race. Because we have a constitution which is basically a trade agreement between the states and the federal government with minimal protections for the individual against the arbitrary exercise of state power. And I'll say it again. Apart from the freedom to choose your religious belief, 
not the way you practice it, but your religious belief, we have minimal constitutional protections for the individual against the arbitrary exercise of state power. And in a nutshell, what that means, it's very simple. If after a little bit of uh, fanning, a little bit of hate, uh, the population elects a government that controls the House of Representatives and the uh, Senate that believes two-year-old blue-eyed children are the spawn of the devil and they need to be incarcerated for the rest of their lives. There is nothing in the Constitution which stops our government, that's right, our government, the government we elect, to impose those legal sanctions and criminalise blue-eyed two-year-old children. Now, I know this is an extreme example, but let's look at what's been happening in this country. We now have legislation which criminalises dissent. Criminalise it, makes it a criminal offence. It's constitutional. You don't have the right to protest. That's garbage. There is no constitutional right to protest. There is no constitutional right to free association. We now have legislation which criminalises trade unions, which has, for all intentional purposes, removed the right to strike, the right to remove your labour to improve your situation. You can be fined $10,000 a day, an individual worker, for being involved in a wildcat strike. You can be jailed for up to 25 years for being involved in, in an occupation, and the list goes on and on. And now we have seen how you can criminalise citizens who are overseas. We're not talking about permanent residents or refugees or asylum seekers. We've already had those high court challenges in the high court 20 years ago found that under the Australian Constitution, let's not forget, the High Court judges can only, can only, you know, work within what was written by the founding fathers, and it was the founding fathers, not the founding mothers in this country, found that the Commonwealth Government could jail indefinitely for life any asylum seeker or refugee they wanted. And now we're seeing, although people say it's illegal, unconstitutional, well, it's garbage, it is constitutional, we now have the situation where Australian citizens are denied the right of re-entry. Obviously, we're using a health crisis. Obviously, we don't have the quarantine facilities, which are up to scratch. But again, that lack of protection for the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power in our constitutional arrangements mean that we can criminalise citizens. Now, if you think this is something new, cast your mind back to the widows and children of Islamic, Australian Islamic state fighters who went across to the Middle East on a little jaunt, dragged their wives with them, in the majority of cases, unwilling, obviously the worst some willing, majority of cases, unwilling, had children, died on the battlefield for who knows what, 
some you know medieval interpretation of the Quran. And now their wives and children, who are Australian citizens, are denied entry. And they've been criminalised, not because of the activities they've involved in, because they've been associated with people who, under our legislation, were involved in criminal activity. So don't tell me there are any protections in the Australian Constitution. Don't tell me the fact that Indian citizens have been denied entry for two weeks, not two to three years, like Islamic State uh, widows and children. Don't tell me we have constitutional protections for the individual. Now, tomorrow, if the minister wishes, and that's the Minister of Home Affairs, I think, wishes... They could stop me broadcasting the anarchist will this week. They don't these days because I, you and I, we're basically irrelevant. We're about point naught 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 one percent of the population. And everybody else is, you know, wants the dream, the new car, the new house, the holiday, the boat. I mean, people listening to this program, we're not attracted to that. But we're no threat. We're no threat. Maybe intellectually we're a threat. But no, we're, not, we're no threat to the status quo. So they allow people like you and me to continue our existence. But let's not forget that historically we have seen organisations like the Anarchist you know, Media Institute banned in this country. When the industrial, during the First World War, when the industrial workers of the world were at the forefront of the anti-conscription struggle, they were banned their members were jailed, their assets were removed. The Minister for Home Affairs can ban any any organisation in this country he or she feels like, because they may pose a threat to Commonwealth interests. Maybe they'll be doing too much defacing of Commonwealth property with a bit of graffiti. And you can be jailed for up to 25 years for being a member of that organisation. And if you raise money for that organisation's def- members' defence, you can be jailed for up to 25 years. That's all constitutional, all legal. So that's the dilemma. We are the only Western power, the so-called liberal democracy, that has no protection for the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. Think about it. So every time there's a problem, criminalise it. Every time there's a threat, criminalise it. High Court, tick, 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 because of the current constitutional arrangements. And don't tell me it was an accident. When the Australian Constitution was voted on, and it had to be voted on by the various colonial governments, the various uh, citizens of these colonial governments, in order to form the Federation in 1901, it was no accident that human rights were not incorporated in the Constitution because they did have the option of following the United States constitutional arrangements and giving the individual some protection from the arbitrary exercise of state power. So if you're looking to legal challenges to prevent the Commonwealth government from criminalising dissent, criminalising trade union, criminalising citizens, criminalising two-year-old blue-eyed children, well, don't hold your breath because it's not there. Even as far as the question of voting was concerned and the question of freedom of speech was concerned, 
the High Court had to find an implied right to free speech during an election campaign. During an election campaign only, because you can't have an election without free speech. Think about it. Isn't it wonderful living in the great land of Oz, the land down under, the land which is ruled by the dream, the dream to acquire material possessions. That's what it's about, boys and girls. The more toys you have, the greater your debt, the more you work for the man and the woman. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. And all those of you who are waiting for me to say the word actually, I haven't said it yet. Well, since I first said it. Vaccine hesitancy and COVID-19 hostages. Interesting, isn't it? Look, I've had my first AstraZeneca injection, the Australian one, and uh, obviously I took a risk. But the risk is minimal. I have a one in a million chance of dying. Maybe for a bit younger, the chance is a little bit less from the vaccine. Uh, But if I, at my age, if I uh, developed COVID-19 symptoms and I had no immunity to them, I'd have about a 1 in 10 to 1 in 15 chance of dying. I mean, we saw this in Victoria during the height of the uh, breakout from the uh, quarantine facilities where, you know, people would, you know, the death toll every day was increasing and although our death toll was minimal compared to most other places in the world, you can see what happens when COVID-19 gets its tentacles in the population. So I can understand people being hesitant, especially with the type of reporting we see in this country, constant reporting. It's all about creating creating hysteria in the community. Hysteria. And the government response to this reporting has been abysmal in terms of its campaign in order to reassure people regarding the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, why did I have a vaccine? Why did I choose to have my first dose? Well, first of all, I'm a doctor, therefore I work with sick people. Therefore, I have a duty, right, to ensure that I don't infect the people I see, because the people I see, although I'm only work part-time now, the people I see are some of the most severely physically disabled people in this community, and if they capture COVID-19, they do have a high chance of dying. Okay? So that's my personal responsibility. The second thing is, I do have a responsibility to the people I mix with. I have a responsibility to family and friends. I have a responsibility to political colleagues I have a responsibility to the people who come to the functions and activities that the Anarchist Media Institute organises. I have a responsibility to those who come to the dinners, those who come to the public interest before corporate interests campaigns. I have a personal responsibility. That's the second reason I've had my first AstraZeneca injection. The third reason is I'm a member of this community. I walk through this community. 
I meet people. I buy things. I go to restaurants. Went to one last night. So I have a responsibility to the general community. And the fact is that the more people who receive the COVID-19 injection, the greater the possibility of this country and the world returning to a normal existence. Then I have a responsibility to the world as a whole because I'm a citizen, I'm a human being, I'm part of the human species, although obviously some of you would deny that, but (laughs) I do have a responsibility. The dilemma is if COVID-19 goes unchecked, what we will see is a development of variants which are more contagious and more serious. If a significant section of the population becomes uh, has a vaccine, then the chances of uh, resistant strains or resistant variants developing decrease and the COVID-19 will become like the flu. I mean, people die from the flu, although they get injected, they have a flu shot, people get side effects from the flu shot, but generally we don't have the issues we see in certain countries in the world. So I made my decision to go down that pathway. Now, if I develop clots and I keel over, that's the price that's paid. Because when you take responsibility for what you're doing, there's always a price to pay. There is always a price to pay. If I decide to cross a busy highway with my eyes closed, well, there will be a bad price to pay. That's why I keep my eyes open and, you know, cross when I think it's safe. I mean, I could be sitting in this studio talking to you now and a meteorite could come through the roof or more likely a drone and that's the end of me. It's a risk we all take when we wake up. We could fall out of bed, fall over, break a hip, die. It goes on and on. So... If you're hesitant about the COVID-19 injection, think about it. Think about your responsibility, not just to yourself, but the people around you. And that's what makes us part of the human society, a human community. Because human beings ultimately are social animals. We're social animals. That's what has allowed us to develop as the alpha species on the planet because we're social animals, because we cooperate, we work together. I mean, anarchism is about mutual aid, cooperation, working together. So, balls in your court. If you're hesitant, think about it. Hostages. Now, when I spoke before, and this is the fascinating thing about the COVID-19 vaccines which are available in the general community, Because currently there is a shortage of vaccines in the developing world. Huge shortage as we've seen in India. Not just a a shortage of hospital beds, medical staff, oxygen, but vaccines. Because it's vaccines which will prevent the disaster that is unfolding before our eyes in India and other parts of the world. And that is the fact that COVID-19 vaccines are private 
property. They haven't been developed in the majority of cases by governments. This is in the West. They have been developed by private corporations which have intellectual property rights over that vaccine for the next 25 years. So that means that there is a shortage because a lot of places can't afford them. A lot of manufacturing facilities are not up to scratch because of the numbers of vaccines that are needed. And the intellectual property rights prevents other laboratories and vaccine production centres from producing COVID-19 vaccines. And that's the problem. So if we want to overcome this potential disaster, we need as a population to demand that those intellectual property rights are rescinded from vaccine makers. And then people put their hands up in the air in, in horror and say, oh, Joe, that means the private sector will never again invest any money in developing new drugs and new vaccines. Why do we need to rely on the private sector? Why do we need to rely on a private investment for private profit sector to provide essential services, infrastructure, vaccines? And if those corporations which have gone to all the hassle of developing the current vaccines say, we're going to lose money, well, you just buy them out. National governments create money out of thin air, as we saw recently with the COVID-19 economic uh, disaster. You buy the intellectual property rights. It's, I mean, to go on a totally different tangent, it reminds me of the Aboriginal flag here in Australia. The Torres Strait Islander flag is a flag which was chosen after a competition in the Torres Strait. So it belongs to everybody. Anybody can use it. The Aboriginal flag belongs to an individual who has property rights over that flag, who makes money from that flag. Now, the federal, now the Aboriginal flag, like the Australian flag and the Torres Strait Islander flags, are official Australian flags. They have the imprimatur, the stamp. These are official flags which represent this country. Why can't the federal government buy the intellectual property rights from the individual to ensure that the Aboriginal flag becomes a flag which can be used by everybody without the hassle of paying royalties for using the flag. Think about it. It's the same with the COVID-19 hostage, with the COVID-19 hostages we now have in the developing world. Because with intellectual property rights put the profits of the company which developed the vaccine or a medication before the health needs of billions of people. So who's in charge? Is the government of the day, as Mr Morrison likes to say and the rest of them like to say, in charge of what happens in this country and around the world, various governments, 
Or is the private sector in charge of what actually happens? I use the word actually twice now. There you go, that's $2 for the uh, Radiophone on uh, June the 16th. Mm, I have to stop doing that. But think about it. Think about it. Intellectual property rights. Obviously people who develop something do have a right to some compensation. But they, do they have the right to hold the world hostage? Do they have that right? Does the individual owner of the Aboriginal flag have the right to use a flag which is now a national flag, have the right to prevent people using that flag? Think about it. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. Look, those of you who listen to the program on uh, Melbourne Radio 3CR will know that I do a, uh, two other programs on uh, 3CR. I do Radical Australia where I interview interesting people and boring people, obviously. We interview activists and obviously some activists like me can be very boring and some can be very exciting. So, and I also do a program called Talk Back with Attitude between 10am and 11am every Thursday morning with uh, Patricia. And um, we take calls, you know, we take calls. So if you want to tell me any time they use the word actually and how much I owe the radio phone, you can always ring up 039 419 Thursday morning. Now here's another big issue. How do we make sense of the Middle East? Because there are some fascinating things happening. And why what happens in the Middle East has anything to do with you and me? We live in Australia, what, 10,000 kilometres away. And it has a profound impact, and it's been having a profound impact, and most people don't understand why it's having such a profound impact and what's happening in the Middle East. Now, let's look at the Middle East. Everybody knows about Israel. It was formed, was it, 1949? Palestinians have become uh, aliens in their own land, like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in, in Australia. We all know that. But what do we know about what's happening outside Israel? Because the Middle East is a big place. It's over 20 countries. Because most of the uh, flashpoints which are, have been occurring to date, but which are kind of receding, because I'll talk about other flashpoints in a minute, happen in the Middle East. Well, the Middle East is basically divided between three types of governments. You've got feudal monarchies, like the House of Saudi, which rules the Arabian Peninsula, like in Qatar, Dubai, the Emirates, Jordan, Oman, these are feudal, Bahrain, these are feudal monarchies, nasty feudal hereditary monarchies. And the king of the nasties, as far as the feudal monarchies are concerned, is the house of Saudi, which rules the Arabian Peninsula. I never use the word Saudi Arabia anymore because it's not the property the Arabian Peninsula is not the property of the Saudi family who was given that right by the English colonisers when they evacuated the Middle East. But the Arabian Peninsula is the property of the people who live on the Arabian Peninsula, not one particular family, 
which has total control over its citizens and guest workers. And I want to talk about the House of Saudi as we go through this point. Then we have military dictatorships or dictatorships. Now, when the feudal monarchies were overthrown, mainly by the Ba'ath Party, which is a socialist agenda, we saw authoritarian one-party states grow up in that region. States like Syria, Iraq, to name a few. One-party states, strong one-party states, which had a secular bent. Then we have... Well, we have democracies like Lebanon which is and uh, Tunisia, I mean parliamentary democracies, and there's always different types of power arrangements in those countries and always frictions. But then we have the theocracies. And when the revolution occurred in 1979, when the Ayatollah, not the Ayatollah, the, uh, the, the emperor of Iran, whatever he called himself in those days, who was put there by the United States government, you know, to protect its oil supplies, when he was overthrown, we had, although there was a huge number of factions and different secular movements in that revolution, it was the religious-based people who eventually gained power. So in the Middle East, you've got this situation where on one side you've got Iran, which is a Shia-based government, And on the other end of the Middle East, you've got the Sunnis, the House of Saudi, which rules the Arabian Peninsula, okay? Now, they've become proxies, proxies for the battle between the old Soviet Union and Russia and the United States. Bahrain has the biggest United States military base outside of the United States, And the main reason the Russians intervened in uh, Syria when initially a popular uprising, then an uprising which was dominated by religious fundamentalists, uh, Russia moved in because they have a significant naval base in Syria. Now these two groups, the Iranians and the House of Saudi, have been fighting for supremacy in the Middle East. And when you fight for supremacy in the Middle East and you're a major power, you don't fight against each other. You have proxy battles in other people's backyards. And the people who are suffering the most at the minute in these proxy battles are the people of Yemen, who've been involved in uh, air raids, Saudi air raids, Saudi blockages of the ports, People have been dying through lack of medicines, and I'm not talking about just COVID-19. I'm talking about simple things like cholera, over 100,000 deaths, starvation, and the list goes on and on. So these these proxy battles. Now, on top of this, you have to look at the role of religion because this is a, a part of the world where religion plays a major influence. Now, obviously, there's other parts of the world where religious plays a major influence, but here it plays a fundamental influence. And Australia and the West, we have put our marbles in the same bag as one of the most oppressive, evil, 
authoritarian regimes on the planet. The House of Saudi, which rules the Arabian Peninsula with an iron fist, which uses religion, has a battering ram. And if you look at most of the terrorist attacks that have occurred around the world, especially the, you know, the Twin Towers, you'll notice it's the House of Saudi, which has been providing the financial support for the brand of Islam, Wahhabi, which is colonising the earth. So why does it have anything to do with Australia? It's very simple. The House of Saudi has made its money through oil. And it continues to make its money through oil. But it has used these funds not just to assist its people materially, but to export its brand of Islam to the rest of the world. And that includes Malaysia and Indonesia. And if you look at what happened in Bali, with the Bali bombing, you can see the influence that the House of Saudi has on the development of the uh, Muslim culture in Malaysia and southern Philippines and Indonesia. Huge impact. Huge impact. Changes within our lifetime we've seen in those countries. Now, it gets more complex. <laughs> Try to stay with me and hopefully I'll get it right. It gets more complex. Now, the, like any religious faith, you know, the Christian faith is divided into sects, tons of sects. You've got the Roman Catholic, you've got the Protestant, you've got all the Protestant sects, then you've got, you know, you've got the, um, you've got the you know, happy clappers, whatever, they, you know, Morrison's religious people, you know, the, it goes on and on, okay? It's the same in the Muslim religion. You have the... Sunnis, which is the majority, about 80% of the pop Muslim population, and the Shia. And they've got a falling out which goes back 1,300, 1,400 years at the beginning of the prophet's life. Well, at the end of his life. All right? And they don't see eye to eye. And it's fascinating. About 200, I mean, the Quran is... God's word in the Muslim religion. And in the Christian religion, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, through the Virgin Mary to bring Christianity to the world. Okay? Now, in the Muslim religion, God spoke to Muhammad, the prophet. Muhammad was illiterate. He told the people around him what the God told him, and that makes up the Koran. Now, a few hundred years later, like any religious text or any text, there were many limitations, the many variations of how the Koran was interpreted by different people. Because unlike the Roman Catholic Church, Islam, or Sunni Islam, like the Protestant, Christian Protestant religion, is a fractured belief system. 
and different imams look at the Quran in different ways. Now, about 200 years after the death of Muhammad, a little text appeared which is fundamental to most Sunni Muslims, which is the Sahih al-Bakari, which is a collection of the Prophet Muhammad's words and actions and his interpretation of what's in the Quran. And the Sari al-Bakari limits to a significant degree how you can interpret the Quran. So let's fast forward to the 21st century. Why have I gone all through this? Well, Muhammad bin Sulman, the liquidator, remember the man who, uh, the liquefier, my apologies, the liquefier, the man who uh, ordered the liquefaction of uh, one of his uh, critics, Kozaji, the uh, journalist. Well, he is the heir apparent. When the old king, you know, shuffles off his mortal coil, Mohammed bin Sulman is going to take over the House of Saudi, which controls the Arabian Peninsula. Now, he has a problem. As the oil revenue dries up because the world trans changes from a carbon-based economy to an economy which is not based on carbon, the amount of money which can be collected by the House of Saudi that ruled the Arabian Peninsula will dramatically decrease. So he, in order to maintain control, he needs to maintain the current living standards and he needs to make fundamental changes on the Arabian Peninsula. But at the same time, being a feudal monarchy, the House of Saudi does not want to give up power in any form. Now, Mohammed bin Sulman, the prince in the air, made a significant statement on national television a few days ago, which is a little bit like, if you're a Christian, fundamentalist, a little bit like ignoring significant parts of the Bible. And he made the statement that as far as the religion is concerned, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad are not important. All that is important is what's in Quran, in the Quran. And what he's done over the last few years is not jail, just just jail political opponents, as we saw with the uh, the doctor, the Australian doctor who's been extradited on fake charges to Saudi Arabia in the last few weeks. But we have now seen a number of religious leaders, not just Shia, which were executed, have been executed in Saudi Arabia in the last few years, but a number of Sunni religious intellectuals and imams have been imprisoned because in order to make significant changes and maintain the power of the House of Saudi, he needs to be able to interpret the Koran any way he believes will cement the power of the House of Saudi. This is, a, this, is, this is a cataclysmic event. 
Because what we could see is that the feud between the House of Saudi and Iran may come to an end. Fascinating. Sorry if I lost you and sorry if I got a bit of the pronunciation wrong, but it's, it's basically using religion or religious beliefs to maintain secular power. Nothing new in the history of the universe. We've seen it over and over again. We saw it in the West over and over again when the Christian church dominated the political discussion and dominated political power. We saw it when Henry VIII created the Church of England out of nowhere because he wanted... No, he didn't want another wife. He had enough of them and enough mistresses. He just wanted the, the, uh, all the property that the uh, Roman Catholic Church had. But that's a different story. So hopefully we've made this as clear as mud. But uh, keep your eye on the Middle East. Let's move on. Isn't it wonderful when the drums of war are beating, we wheel out the war criminals? Now, it was fascinating to see Henry Kissinger, who I thought had died years ago, turn up to the drums of war, the mass murderer, the war criminal, Henry Kissinger, who was responsible for the deaths of over 3 million Vietnamese, over half a million Cambodians, almost 2 million... um, I mean, half a million Laotians, almost two million Cambodians, the list goes on and on, wheeled out, telling us about the great threat from the Chinese Communist Party. It's, it's funny, isn't it? The Chinese Communist Party has been in charge of China. It's been the Chinese government for the last 70 years. They just had their 70th anniversary in power. But they're still not considered a legitimate government, although they're into private investment for private profit by so-called Western democracy. So they, you, listen to the, you listen to Mr Morrison talk about the Chinese Communist Party, you know, in charge of China. We never hear about the dictatorship in Myanmar or the feudal monarchy, which we support to the hilt, on the Arabian Peninsula. We don't hear about that. We hear about all the excesses of the Chinese Communist Party. I have no problem. I agree. I agree. I'm not a communist, never been a communist, don't want centralised power, I'm interested in decentralisation. As an anarchist, it's about decentralisation, sharing power, not centralising power and wealth. But it does make me sick when we're beating the drums of war and have gone out on a limb. That's right, we've gone out on a limb for the sake of our US masters. We've gone out on a limb beating the drums of war, following the Pied Piper, Henry Kissinger, the ward criminal, beefing up you know, our military, thinking that somehow we're going to be able to win some type of, you know, spurious battle. Just extraordinary. Just extraordinary. I said to a woman yesterday, who's got three sons, I said, oh, isn't it nice you've got three sons, they can all be sacrificed in the coming, you know, drums of war. She was horrified. Horrified, because I don't think a lot of people understand where this leads. And to compound matters, and this is what really, <laughs> really highlights how ignorant and stupid this government is, the federal government, how ignorant and stupid they are. Now, in this little forthcoming battle, you know, the forthcoming end of the world, the forthcoming battle as we rehash the Cold War, is that you need allies, okay? You can't rely on the United States of America. You need allies. We are part of Asia. So we have been putting out feelers to the Hindu nationalists who run the Indian government. Because obviously being Hindu nationalists, they don't like 
Muslim-based governments, okay? Because they've got their own significant Muslim population. So, so what do we do? India is supposed to be the great ally. You know, Japan, South Korea, India, the great ally to protect us against the yellow hordes which are, hordes which are going to stream down and steal all the iron ore, okay? So what do we do? We ban Indians who are Australian citizens from coming back to this country. We do a Trump who put a finger in a potential ally's eyes, expecting that they will forgive us later on. So if we want to be part of the big boys and we want to go out there and we've been invited to the G7 is on the sidelines in Australia and South Africa, we want to be part of the big boys, the big boys and girls, you know, beating the drums of war. It's about time that we learnt that uh, the few allies we may have shouldn't be... Um, Upset. I mean, every day we go out further and further on a limb which puts us at the front line of war. In the past, our geographical isolation protected us, protected our citizens and residents and the people of this country from the worst excesses of war. But today, in a global world, which is dominated by technological innovations, to put us on the front line on some ideological battle which has very little to do with us, in order to please the United States, is ludicrous. We are playing with the lives of millions of Australians. This government is playing with the lives of millions of Australians. I could understand if we had 600 nuclear bombs and 20 aircraft carriers and, you know, 200 million people, maybe we could beat our chest, but we don't. We are a tiny 25 million people on the outskirts of the world. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I've been hosting the program. Any complaints, don't ring me. Ring somebody else. You can uh, email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com. Sorry, info at anarchistage at yahoo.com or info at pipsy.net. You can become a member of Pipsy by public interest before corporate interest by downloading the application form from Pipsy. Dot net, P-I-B-C-I dot net. YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Facebook page, Toscana for the Public, Joseph Toscana. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. You can always leave messages on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. And you can always write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Listen in to the Anarchist World this week, next week on your local community radio Station Blood destruction Sorcerer of death construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse 10am every Wednesday Listen to the Anarchist World this week For an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events Brainwash minds. Oh, larger.
it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.